Hey, it's Chris Bleck. On this episode, I get to speak with Seth for privacy. He's an educator, privacy advocate. He works for Foundation Devices as their head of content. He's been an outspoken Monero community member for five years, and he's worked on education and adoption of Monero along with Bitcoin and other freedom technology. We talk a lot about what holds me back from going all in on Monero and whether native privacy can ever be in Bitcoin's future. So before we get to that, let me just thank my sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Foundation Devices, the makers of the beautiful air-gapped open source assembled in the USA Bitcoin hardware wallet called Passport. And by air-gapped, I mean this device never goes online, never needs to connect to your computer. Every time you connect your hardware wallet to your internet-connected computer, you're running some risk. But Passport uses an SD card to eliminate that risk. And it's super simple to sign Bitcoin transactions by just scanning QR codes. So much safer to do it this way. You can use their mobile app called Envoy, or you could use Sparrow Wallet or Electrum. There's a hundred ways that you can use Passport. You can do it in your own way. The attention to detail and design is just amazing. So many crypto hardware wallets look like they were made by engineers, right? But the Passport is totally different. It's beautiful. The average person would look at this and think it's a, a little mobile phone or something like that. It has a rechargeable battery, a glass display, really, really nice. You need to take a look at Passport. Decide for yourself. They're back in stock. So go to foundationdevices.com and check it out. Thank you to an amazing group of ThorChain supporters for sponsoring this week's episode. When you want to swap between two cryptocurrencies, whether it's Bitcoin to Ethereum or Dogecoin to Litecoin or whatever it might be, the first way you probably think about doing it is on a centralized exchange, right? Well, you have another option, a much more decentralized option. That is ThorChain. ThorChain is a decentralized cross-chain network of nodes that enables you to swap native, not wrapped, but native assets between blockchains. And you never have to give anyone else custody of your assets. You're sending from your own self-custodial wallet and receiving back into your own self-custodial wallet on another blockchain. It's your decentralized alternative to a centralized exchange. Nobody else out there is doing this. This is very important work that ThorChain is doing. So the next time you want to trade one crypto for another, skip the centralized exchange, check out ThorChain, learn it before you use it, do your research, get all the details at ThorChain.com. What do you have against sparkling water? Spindrift is good, man. I know. We So <laughs> we started keeping some at our house just for when we have people over because we feel mm. bad because all we ever have to drink is filtered water and raw milk. And I feel bad <laughs> when we have people over and I'm like, would you like a drink? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, we have water and milk. Sorry, we don't drink anything else. So. Do you do the, like the reverse osmosis uh, deal or do you, mm-hmm. do you just use a yeah. Brita filter or something? Reverse? No, yeah. reverse osmosis. It's so nice just to get uh, like an undersink filter and then have un- essentially unlimited cool but not like really cold filtered water. Um, it's been like one of the best things for my family because we all drink so much water all throughout the day. Get the fluoride well, out. The- oh, yeah. All that fun stuff. That's like the only way to get the fluoride it. out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you don't have to replace filters like 
every week with the Brita thing. Or I know they're not that frequent, but they're a pain in the butt to me. So I like the ones where you do it once a year and have all the water you can need. Yeah. I've done the research into, or I've tried to, into fluoride wa- fluoridated water. Like why it's there is a whole other story, but getting non-fluoridated water is hard. Like you buy, yeah. like I, you know, I'll buy this, you know, just spring water, right? From the yeah. supermarket. But this has fluoride in it. But then like some <laughs> brands do and some don't. Like how does that fluoride yeah. if it's from a spring? Like they must add it at some point, right? Yeah. And then, um, but if you buy um, Evian, I believe, like it's fluoride free. Like why is that one fluoride free? What's going on? And like, who knows this and who doesn't? I'm assuming it's cheaper to filter with fluoride or not filter, but clean with fluoride rather than do it a more expensive way. But I like my water to be just clean water and not sparkling. Because sparkling water is just like bad juice or or weak soda. Well, okay. Before we get into Monero and stuff. Okay. So Spindrift (laughs) is is, is good. Now, I don't know if there's fluoride in here, but it's it's nice. It's it's real. It's not like that LaCroix garbage. There's um, some of those other ones that are like artificial flavors but I, they're not bad maybe, just to I me they taste like good. watered down juice yeah fair enough but, okay yeah. set me up whatever, personal right? reference yeah you know we can't we can't agree on everything these are the um, the riveting self-sovereignty conversations that people <laughs> people come to you for chris who do you have to trust to get good water these days um, all i really want is freedom to choose my water so so we decided to get on a podcast this time we've done your podcast before um mm-hmm. And by the way, Seth, you're the guy who introduced me to um, like Calyx OS, Graphene. Um, yep. You and Henry from TechLore were great for me two, three years ago when I was starting to dive into like, how do I stay private with my mobile device, with my computer? Um, so I went down that rabbit hole. So thank you for that. You know, it's still yep. impacting me, obviously. Um so we started to talk about doing this podcast because of Monero, and I, I just randomly go down rabbit holes once in a while. And um, I mean, Monero Twitter uh, fans are relentless with it. like basically every time you post anything even closely relating to crypto privacy, they jump on your ass and they're like, "Why aren't you just using Monero, you dick?" <laughs> like it's like and with nothing else. Okay, so so you know one of the reasons there's there's a couple of reasons that I that I liked I, what I say in my position is typically Monero is a great tool. Uh, it's a great tool. It's an important tool, and we should support it. I don't think it's a tremendous store of value, and the reason for that is because I think there's too many when you're talking about store of value. You can't talk about something as a store of value without talking about its future in terms of buying power and in terms of fiat. You can't. You just can't. Because if you're talking store of value, you're talking about store of buying power, mm-hmm. right? You're talking about, can I use this to buy the same amount of bread today as I can buy in two years or five years? And so when you have that conversation, you start to, to talk about what can impact its buying power. Okay, so one of the things that can impact its buying power is the fact that it could become uh, a subject. So it could be subjected to fear tactics by governments, right? Governments could say it's now illegal to hold Monero. Okay, that's a that's a big one, right? I mean, I'm not out of line there, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the illegal to hold or use is one that's 
very unlikely to be enforced, although Tornado Cash obviously kind of shifted that around a bit because just using Tornado Cash as U.S. citizen became a crime overnight. Yeah. Um, but at least as far as it's illegal to buy it on a centralized exchange. I mean, we're, we're already seeing that. That's been happening for years. Uh, and like regulations coming in the EU and a lot of kind of shadowy back channel stuff with banks has been preventing exchanges from listing it or causing them to have to delist it over time. So I think that's, mm-hmm. it's definitely a valid concern if you're looking from only that angle of how easily can I on-ramp or off-ramp to Monero. Well, yeah, but okay, so when you think about like Tornado Cash and you think about other stuff we've been seeing from the US government, I guess, and EU mm-hmm. governments, as far as not just crypto, but generally, they don't want you to be able to move money without them seeing it. Yep. And Monero is a, it happens to be a currency, but it's also a technology that allows you to move money without them seeing it, right? So if you remove the fact that it's a currency, um, which is inextricably linked to that technology, if you just look mm-hmm. at it as tech, it doesn't, it doesn't stray too far from the, the, the same um, objective that Tornado and other like mixers and stuff like that have. So like people come back to me when I make this argument and say, well, name one other time it's been illegal to hold a currency, right? And it's like rare, if ever, in the US where that's been an issue, you know, gold, obviously, for a little while there. But but with Monero, you can't use it without holding. I mean, you could like say maybe there's some atomic swap situation where you wouldn't hold it. But I mean, the main function is to hold it and to use it as a as a money. Yeah. So it's like I don't think it's out. I I think it's likely that it becomes illegal at some point somewhere. It's certainly possible. I mean, it's it's one of those things where a lot of the design decisions that have gone into Monero have been preparing for that that type of eventuality. Obviously, not that we want governments to ban Monero or we want people to be prevented from using it legally, but understanding that technology that removes power from centralized governments and gives it back to the individual is something that's always going to be a fight. There's there's going to be a battle. Um, obviously, hopefully not a physical one, but at least a digital battle and likely a, a, a legal and regulatory battle. Um, and so the design decisions ensure that even in that situation, it still works. But you are right that the, it's, it's inextricably linked between Monero the currency and Monero the technology. Because even there's no real use case where you can use it without holding the Monero and still gain privacy. A lot of the ideas people have around using Monero or any other privacy preserving cryptocurrency do not work if you're talking about using them in the sense of I'm paying with Bitcoin, I'm using some service to swap it to Monero and ultimately pay in Monero to gain privacy. It doesn't work very well because that that middleman obviously has visibility in the transaction and timing analysis is very simple to do between those two to to trace through those transactions most of the time. So even that's not an effective method. But I, I think the maybe the devil's advocate view there is if something is powerful enough that the US government is seeking to ban it, and yet it can it can prevent the government from actually preventing its usage, there could be something to be said about that actually driving value. Is it white market value of kind of the above board KYC compliant value? No. But is it a, a separate type of black market? Again, not like 
drug usage or something like that, but black market in the sense of it's not allowed to be used by citizens value where people see its immense value once they realize why does the government hate this so much? And we've seen a little bit of that with Tornado Cash, with there's still quite a bit of volume to Tornado Cash, even though it's harder to use than ever. People are still using it. Uh, and I think something very similar would happen with Monero in that instance. And in a lot of ways, it could gain value as a tool that can be used for things that nothing else really can. Uh, but that, that really does depend on kind of what the landscape's like with Bitcoin privacy tools, other cryptocurrencies, what other options there are for people. Because people will go for the the legal easier method if there is one that is still good enough. Um, but the question is, would there be something good enough that's allowed at that point if Monero was banned? I would argue probably yeah. not, because we'd likely see more centralized privacy tools taken down first or attacked first rather than Monero. Do you like Monero obviously is is um private and the tech is designed to not reveal senders and recipients and amounts. Uh, but do you feel like enough people are using it in a way where the fact that they're using it, not how they're, you know, not who they're sending to, not the amounts, but the fact that they're actually using it, do you feel like that is still too easily discerned with users? Or do you feel like most users are using it in a way that, that, because you do have to use it in a way that actively protects your identity, right? So, like, do you feel like most Monero users are, are findable or not? I mean, again, I think it really depends. You don't necessarily need for it to be something where you are totally anonymous and using Monero. Like, I think you do we if don't it's have illegal. to go. I guess well, that's yes, what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if we're if we're talking the scenario where Monero is illegal, yeah. yes, then it it does get a lot harder. In that in that situation, the normal the normal issue is not the currency that you use, but it's other operational security, OPSEC related issues. I mean, even if we look at we look at Bitcoin, which is by default, terrible for privacy. People, the vast majority of the time, in almost every single case where someone has been arrested and they've been using Bitcoin to do something illegal, they're not arrested because the Bitcoin is traced, even though that could be done. But they're arrested because there was some other OPSEC mistake that made it easy for them to be linked to the thing that they were doing that's illegal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would apply in that kind of situation too, where it would be important that if you wanted to keep using Monero and this uh, hypothetical future situation, it would be very important that you care deeply about the rest of your personal privacy, especially when it comes to actually on-ramping and off-ramping from Monero. Um, and that's where decentralized exchanges, that's where peer-to-peer -peer exchanges become vital because that would be the only way that you'd actually be able to, to get Monero. Um, a lot of those could continue to function in those situations. Things like BISC would still work for like Bitcoin to Monero. Fiat to Monero is always the tricky part. That's That's where if governments really want to push back against cryptocurrencies, the easiest way for them to do so is to fight the the, the fiat on and off ramps because those are the hardest ones to do in a privacy preserving manner. But as long as cash is legal, it, it would definitely be doable. Um, but that I mean, that would be the tricky part is if it was illegal to use hiding the fact that you use it involves broad personal privacy, which is right. a, a lot more difficult than just using Monero. Um, but today, you don't need to have everything else in order to gain a lot from Monero, uh, to gain a lot from the financial privacy that it provides. Because you don't need to be anonymous today to use it. It's totally legal. There's nothing wrong with using it. There's nothing written or unwritten from regulators that goes against it. Um, even in the places where there are some regulations being proposed, they're not against you using it or having it. Uh, it's about 
whether or not exchanges can list it, which like I said, right. is the, the easiest pressure point. I think it's likely. I think it's likely it becomes illegal at some point. So that that's my personal view. Right. So I think that if it does, it's very hard to hide the fact that you're using it. And most people will be afraid to use it and it'll impact the market. Now, liquidity will drop. Obviously, it'll be harder to find. It'll be harder to buy. Supply won't drop um, because you can't alter the supply. But the low liquidity could drive up. It might be harder to buy, you know, kind of like weed or, you know, drugs. Like it's like it's it's not like there's a low supply. It's just it's harder to find, harder to it, where it's illegal. Now it's legal everywhere. Yeah. But, You'd have um, to know a Monero guy <laughs> to be <laughs> right, able to get you it. You need a Monero dealer. <laughs> right. He's uh-huh. going to charge a premium. So um, that's, you know, one thing. All right. So we uh, were talking on Twitter, too, about the auditability. And I know you've you've thought about this a lot, but the fact that Monero is an opaque blockchain where you can't see the amounts in the transactions, you can't see who's it sent to, who's it who's receiving. That's all by design, right? Um, but you also wouldn't be able to see um, when it happens if somebody exploits a bug in Monero and is able to to mine or mint a billion. XMR, right? So you wouldn't be able to it, see it that depends. transaction on the chain, right? So that my my uh, just to set the table here, what I said on Twitter was, it's I, I like Monero. It's a useful tool. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I support it and I use it. Um, but I take into consideration the fact that you can't be as certain about its supply at any given moment as you can about bitcoins. So, uh, and I'm comparing the two and I'm saying that this is why you might want to think twice about using Monero as a store of value versus Bitcoin. You know, obviously Bitcoin is less private, but in this case, it's like a, a, a feature when you're thinking about at any given moment, can you know the supply? So how do you, how do you push back to that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of things to unpack there. Um, initial concession is just that I, I agree with you. I think this is probably the only rational, maybe not the only rational, but I think the the most common sticking point for people when it comes to, do I want to store value in Monero and use it as a method of exchange? Do I want to use it to pay for, it, to pay for things, to be paid for goods and services? Or do I want to use Bitcoin as a store of value and just use Monero as a way to, to pay and receive funds? And I think this is, a common sticking point and an understandable one. If you're looking from the store of value angle, easy auditability is an advantage of Bitcoin. Um, but the problem is then also for Bitcoin privacy and using it in a way that doesn't reveal massive amounts of information about you is is difficult in almost every case. There are ways to make that a lot better. Even just not buying through exchanges that that take your KYC information and that take your your PII and, and actually know everything about you. If you avoid that, you gain a lot of kind of a, a, a head start over other people that are using Bitcoin. But it's very difficult to do privacy on Bitcoin because all those details are revealed. Yes, you get easier auditability, but it makes every attempt to use Bitcoin in a privacy-preserving manner more difficult. Yeah. It makes it harder to use privacy-preserving tools. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and it is a very big trade-off because privacy in a currency, especially a currency that's aiming to be digital gold and digital cash, as I think many people would would attest to Bitcoin aiming to be. So I'm um, acknowledging and accepting the fact that it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. But my point was that 
you have to make a choice. Like, you know, if you want to take more of a risk on supply, even if it's a small risk, um, and, and keep privacy, go with Monero. But if you want to use this as a store of value, have full confidence that you are 100% safe from, not from bugs, right? Because there still could be a bug, but from um, being caught off guard by a bug, by, from, from a bug happening and nobody knowing until like three days or a week later, um, that's where Bitcoin can benefit you. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And to unpack a little bit more about the Monero side of things. So when you look at auditability in Monero, most people paint it as a kind of a black and white situation where Monero is not auditable, Bitcoin is auditable. And it's not actually, it's not that black and white. It's very nuanced. So when, when we look at Bitcoin, the way that you do audits right now is you trust the Bitcoin core software to do the audit for you. And you run... Uh, get TX outside, or I can't remember exactly what the command is off the top of my head, but you run a command, you can sum up the the UTXOs within the Bitcoin blockchain and know how many Bitcoin exist and make sure that that's the right amount by comparing to other people, comparing to block explorers, etc. Um, in doing so, you are trusting cryptography, you're trusting code to do that for you. Ultimately, though, in Bitcoin, if you really wanted to, you could get out a napkin and do some math and, and count up the UTXO set yourself because it is all visible amounts that everyone can see and everyone can compare. So you can go kind of a layer beyond and remove some more trust from the code and do it yourself. Um, and that that is the, the main advantage in Bitcoin is you can kind of do the napkin math and figure out what the, the TX outset is. Obviously, I've never heard of anyone actually, actually doing that. Everyone just trusts the software. It's a similar circumstance in Monero where you're trusting the software to check the supply for you. In Monero, the way that we're able to do simple audits is that every Monero that's mined is mined in a way that reveals the amount. So the actual mining process, the emissions, the actual block subsidy, that is all visible, all calculatable in the exact or calculable in the exact same way as Bitcoin. Um, and that's one of the ways that you verify Bitcoin is you check how many Bitcoin have been mined, make sure that that's legitimate. Miners haven't created more out of thin air by exploiting a bug or something like that. You can do the exact same thing in Monero. There's no difference there. The difference in Monero is is that when you actually send a transaction, what happens is we use uh, ring signatures to make sure that, or sorry, not ring signatures, confidential amounts to make sure that when you make that transaction, the inputs and outputs balance out. Same thing you do in Bitcoin. But in Monero, the sender actually creates that proof. And then everyone else in the network can't see the amounts, but they can validate that proof. It's a, it's a zero knowledge proof like everyone in the Zcash system likes to, likes to focus on. It's a very popular type of thing to do. Um, and that zero knowledge proof is, is very time tested, heavily reviewed, repeatedly audited. But that is where the little bit of, I don't know if I want to see, say trust comes in, but the little bit of an additional reliance on more advanced cryptography. Because if there was a break in the way that that proof is created or verified, then someone could create Monero and it would be undetectable. But all that said, there, there are ways that you can detect inflation bugs outside of that. So the, the, the only known inflation bug that's happened in Monero is one that was detectable, that was detected and was fixed before it was exploited. Um, so there are ways that there can be inflation bugs, just like in Bitcoin, that are detectable, that are able to be fixed, so you can just move on from. But yes, in Monero, there could be an undetected hidden inflation bug that you don't have a trivial way to find unless you had someone else 
maybe creating a client in a different language or someone else re-implementing the cryptography and seeing that there was some sort of an issue, something was missed in an audit, that sort of thing. So there is a little bit of trust that goes in place there. Um, but for me, it's just like a, a, a bit more than Bitcoin. And I, I understand, I think it's valid if people think that that's a problem as far as storing their wealth. Like I think that's one of the, the beautiful things of these systems, especially when we can easily move back and forth between them is that you can choose what works best for you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mad if you choose to store value in Bitcoin and just use Monero for spending, or even if you just choose to use Bitcoin only, or you choose to use Monero only. Like There's, there's valid reasons to do any of them. Um, but I think people do need to understand that though the auditing is reliant on slightly more complex cryptography in Monero, the vast majority of the ways that bugs would be present would still be visible. Though there are some ways that someone could create inflation and it would be hidden, which is a risk. And that that comes with the massive advantage of every single user of Monero, no matter their technical capacity, no matter if they care about privacy or not, gains strong financial privacy just by using the tool. They don't have to jump through any extra hoops. They just press send and they gain very strong privacy, which obviously to people in the Monero community, that trade-off is well worth it. To people in the Bitcoin community, that's a little bit of a harder sell. And and so that's why I, I think that most people settle into this idea of Bitcoin as their core store of value. Monero is maybe a lesser store of value and the tool that they use for spending when possible. Um, and I think that's that's the sweet spot for a lot of people. I'm not, not here to sell Monero as a store of value, but um, it's a little bit of a deeper dive into the auditability thing. And it's a very complex topic. I'm happy to, to jump into any other kind of questions you have off that or or any other thoughts well, yeah. on it. So like if you if a if there was a bug and somebody exploited it and minted a billion XMR, um at what point would that be caught? You're saying it would be caught when the when the the block is mined? Or would it, it not it be caught? In, okay. Yeah, so so if the bug was with something in the consensus code around mining, that would be detectable instantly. Because the moment that block was mined, it'd be visible that there were a billion Monero emitted in the, the block subsidy. Everyone would see that on a block explorer. Everyone would freak out. There'd be a hard fork just like there was with Bitcoin. Um, and you'd, you'd just move on. You'd try to do it quickly so that the, the person who exploited it couldn't send that Monero to a bunch of different exchanges or something and try to to sell it, um, but that would be easily detectable. The one that wouldn't be easily detectable is if there was some issue in the cryptography or the implementation of that cryptography that actually hides the amounts. Those those confidential amounts are what are traditionally known as confidential transactions. Because if there was a break there, what could happen is you could create a transaction that would appear legitimate to everyone on the network. Nodes would validate it. The, the proof would look okay. There wouldn't be any problems with it. When in reality, it could be creating a, a billion Monero. Now, obviously, we've never seen that done. And because there's that sensitivity, we have taken, we meaning the Monero community, I'm not a developer, but just kind of speaking for the Monero community, we've taken a lot of extra steps to get extra eyes on the code and the cryptography behind that to ensure as best we can that nothing like that happens. And, that, and that's why we're, we're very careful to get multiple audits whenever we touch any of that code because we want to make sure that there's nothing happening there that could be introducing a bug that would allow that kind of hidden inflation but that's where it gets weird because like people think if there's an inflation bug in monero you'd never be able to see it but that's not true there are lots of ways you could see it there's just this one specific way where it could remain hidden because like even the the one inflation bug that did happen in monero it was detectable it wasn't with the mining process it was with key images which you can kind of think of as an unspent transaction in Bitcoin. Uh, and it was detectable 
But if they moved the amounts, they, you wouldn't be able to follow the amounts after that. But you could detect if the bug was actually exploited itself. It was seen, it was detected, it was fixed before it was actually exploited at all. Um, so again, it's like, it's very nuanced. It's not as simple as you couldn't detect it in Monero or you could. There are just some situations where you couldn't, some where you could. Uh, and wherever possible, right. we try to make sure we can detect those things. And, and this would be, this is an issue with any encrypted um, network or blockchain or whatever it might be. So this isn't something that's unique to Monero. Like there's no. been uh, an example is um, the now defunct Aztec network, which was being built on Ethereum which has since been halted mostly because I think they were afraid of going to jail. But um, the layer two was fully encrypted, you know, so you, 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 they used zero knowledge proofs and whatever, whatever other stuff to high, high level encryption. I did a podcast with them and I still don't understand what the heck they were doing, but they admitted that the encryption was so strong that even they couldn't see what was going on, you know, whether there was mm -hmm. a bug, if somebody was able to, to exploit their own code um, to make some moves, um, mint ETH, like on their chain, like who knows what, um, until until all the, the um, assets were ultimately withdrawn, until they could actually see a balance sheet at mm -hmm. the end of the day. So it's, it's, there's always a challenge when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. So... Are we making the case for Zcash here? Because you have, have sort the of the, problem. <laughs> do they though? Because yeah. so okay, so from from the mining point of view, they don't right because you're able to to their mining is is more out in the public, right? It's the same. Uh, so it's I think they did enable mining to Z addresses, which in theory is private and actually hides the amounts initially. Oh, okay. I can't remember exactly how they implemented that, but otherwise it's the same as Monero, where mining is transparent and it's mined to transparent addresses. And you can see how much Zcash is emitted in each block, which is very standard. But when you use Z addresses or unified addresses, which could be a Z address, it's all confusing. But if you use the privacy tools that are within Zcash, you have the same problem. They, they use a very similar approach to hiding the amounts. Um, and because of that, you have the same issue. A lot of people think that it's lessened in Zcash because they also have transparent addresses. And when they do a protocol upgrade, they use what's called a turnstile, which essentially just means that in order to use the new version of the protocol, you have to move your funds from the old version to the new version and migrate between those two pools. And you go through a turnstile, which actually reveals the information about the transaction. It goes from like Z address to T address to Z address is how you can think about it. They claim that that's a better approach, but the only thing that that really does is it, it does allow them to check, is there hidden inflation that has happened and only this amount can come through? So they'll limit it to exactly what you would expect is in the Zcash supply can actually come through that turnstile. But all that means is that if there was hidden inflation, the attacker who created the hidden inflation would just be the first to move his coins through the turnstile and everyone else would be wrecked and stuck in the old old pool and unable to use their their zcash there's okay. some advantages to that in the sense that they could then maybe tell if enough people reported or something happened that they could they could kind of figure out hey like one entity moved all of the zcash in existence into this pool um, so there's a little bit more visibility to that but it also has some privacy implications because everyone has to reveal their funds as part of that migration um, so 
they t- they have a very similar approach in how the protocol actually works, but they have a, a interesting, maybe better, maybe worse way to handle a, kind of an additional step of verification each time they upgrade their protocol. Um, I think it's an interesting approach, but most of the people I know who are very familiar with both the Monero and Zcash approach don't like the way that turnstiles are handled and think they're more problematic than useful. Mm. Do you think these infl- these potential inflation bugs are the biggest like technical risks to these blockchains as far as, you know, separating out all the other risks, like as far as just like exploits, like what else could Monero, for instance, suffer? What are the potential things that could really hurt the ecosystem outside of that? Yeah, I, I think the the biggest one is really more around how good the privacy provided by Monero is. Because one of the one of the issues you have when you're a tool that claims to preserve privacy, and I, I 100% believe that the claims that Monero makes are, are valid, are legitimate, that it does provide as good a privacy as it says, and the, the lack of court cases involving Monero tracing, the lack of chainalysis, and, and other companies providing tools that are being used to trace Monero, I think it's good evidence of that. But I think the, the biggest problem for me would be that there was some sort of a break in the privacy protocol itself that meant that people using Monero were not getting the privacy that they wanted. Obviously, there is none There is none that we know of right now. Um, and if something came out about a privacy break, one of the great things about the Monero community is we, we are willing to upgrade the protocol when necessary. And so if something came out that Chainalysis had developed a tracing tool that could 100% link transactions in Monero um, together, that would be something where we would immediately try to figure out what's the next step. Let's implement it. Let's let's hard fork and upgrade as, as soon as possible. Once we're able to verify, once we're able to get audits, all, all of the normal stuff, but it would be fixable. But I think that's probably the bigger problem. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of at a turning point in the Monero privacy protocol where we've done lots of things to make the protocol as, as powerful as possible, but I've kind of hit a wall with the current approach to hiding the sender in transactions, what we call ring signatures. Um, but I'm really excited because it, it's looking very likely that with kind of the next network upgrade, which will probably happen in like two to three years, we'll implement something that's called a global membership proof, which is the same kind of concept as Zcash, where any transaction, the sender looks like they could be w- one of any of the people who have ever sent a transaction in the history of the network. Rather than right now in Monero, you look like one out of 16 potential people in each transaction. So it's a it's a much better tool to protect users against very specific, very targeted types of surveillance. Monero is already incredibly effective at preventing mass surveillance because you can't just trivially link transactions together unlike you can with with Bitcoin or with other transparent cryptocurrencies. Um, But I am excited for that upgrade. I think that'll be important because I think that that Monero providing the privacy that it claims to is more important than protecting against an inflation bug because the primary use case right now is really as a tool for spending. If that switches and Monero gains this broad adoption under merchants as, as it has been rapidly gaining, and it kind of becomes a store of value because people value it as a tool for spending, I think that it does continue to become more and more important that no inflation bug happens. But like I said, there's only so much you can do around that. And one of the benefits of more people using Monero and more people uh, building on Monero and more developers jumping in to help with Monero is that the more eyes we have on the code, the less likely one of those bugs is. And that's why like when I talk about like, I would love to have confidential amounts on Bitcoin. I know that's never going to happen. But 
I would love it because of the, the scale of the developer community and the cryptographer community and the research community around Bitcoin would bring a lot more surety to the ability to audit through that cryptography. Because as I mentioned earlier, Monero is not unauditable. It is auditable and you're, you're able to audit it. If you run a Monero node, you can audit the Monero supply. But you are trusting that the implementation and the cryptography are sound for checking those amounts. Um, but that's the part where the more people we have looking at it, the, the safer I think people can assume it is. But like I said, I think it's it's valid if people have that concern to store their wealth in Bitcoin and keep some Monero to be able to spend from because it's so much easier to actually use in a privacy-preserving way right now. Yeah. Isn't the fact that we're so sure that Bitcoin will never have confidential amounts or real privacy, isn't that the clearest sign that Bitcoin is captured? I mean, the fact that we can completely rule out something that's so useful um, just because we know that the people who want Bitcoin to be accepted in global payment systems and its federal currencies and and things like that, and people that want institutions to engage and people that want ETFs and stuff like that, they all know that that won't happen if uh, Bitcoin achieves real privacy. So to me, like that's the clearest sign that we know that it's been captured by that group of people. You know, it's like, I still use Bitcoin and endorse Bitcoin and because I still feel like it'll get me to where I want to be um, as a as a free person. But really at this point, it's only because uh, of other chains like Monero that offer, you know, sort of additional uh, functionality to Bitcoin. Uh, like you, you're part of an effort working on atomic swaps, right? Between Bitcoin and Monero, like that kind of thing is what keeps my faith. It would be harder for me to keep my faith in Bitcoin as uh, a standalone uh, project. What do you think about that? Ooh, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one because I, I understand why people are wary of implementing big changes to Bitcoin's consensus layer. Like it, I understand why they're scared. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to something else I, I tweeted about today. Somebody had a fantastic tweet about how Bitcoin has struggled to gain merchant adoption because it hasn't been a focus. So we've, we've kind of failed in that area because we focus so heavily on other things. And um, I think a lot of that comes back to this overwhelming focus on the digital gold or store of value narrative. And when you're talking digital gold or store of value, most people don't associate a need for privacy with that. I would still argue that if you want to store a value that actually works well, you have to have a way to be able to spend it privately or else you're going to be limited on how you can actually use it in the future and you'll be limited in the, the freedom and the self-sovereignty you can gain through that if there's not a way for you to easily spend it privately. Um, but I think that same kind of store of value only, hodl only mentality means that these tools that would make Bitcoin better digital cash are relegated to essentially just my dreams, <laughs> which I would love to see them implemented, but I just, I don't think there's a way that we could get social consensus at this point. And really it would have either had to happen sooner in Bitcoin's life cycle, um, or there would have to be some sort of crazy social change within the Bitcoin community to make that valid. I, I know that you're right just now saying, the focus- You're just saying what I said, but you're being nicer about it. It's captured. <laughs> 
Probably yes. I mean, yeah. I I don't like using that word because like I don't I don't know that I would say Bitcoin as a whole is captured, but perhaps you could say that kind of core development or consensus development is, and that it it's stagnated both because people desired it and because people were so unwilling to try out new things within Bitcoin. I think too, it, a lot of it comes comes back to the Lightning Network for me, and when I look at what what was promised in the Lightning Network. It was promised to fix our scaling issues, promised to fix our privacy issues, promised to do all of these things. And while I love a lot of the things that Lightning Network can be, it is not what it seemed like we were going to get out of it. It's it's something where I have tried repeatedly many times to do it in a, a wholly self-sovereign way, run my own node, open my own channels, manage them myself, do all of that. That process is incredibly tricky. We've seen the vast majority of Lightning usage is custodial. We've seen really the, I think the only valid way at this point for Lightning to gain adoption in a non-custodial way is through the use of Lightning service providers. But in the light of the Tornado Cash indictment, if that goes through, I don't see a world in which running a Lightning service provider isn't tied to, to that type of thing because of the way that the Lightning Network works. It would be an easy next step for the US government to go after that. And just to caveat, when I say things like that, or when I say things like we were talking about Monero being made illegal, it's not that I am, I, I do not want those things to have a chilling effect on the development or usage of Monero or the Lightning Network, etc. But rather, I think just a, maybe a realistic look at what could happen in the future. Because um, it, be, it can be easy to take when I say things like that is like, you should stop working on this because it's not gonna, it's not gonna fly. I would love for us to build things that no matter what the US government says, we can continue using them and gain privacy or gain freedom through them. That's one of the reasons why I love Monero so much, because even if there was a ban, all of the privacy tools happen at the consensus layer. So if they want to stop Monero being used privately, they have to to stop an entire decentralized blockchain, an entire network of nodes. They have to somehow shut down people's computers from mining Monero because you don't rely on ASICs. There's a lot of things that make it harder to shut down there. But um Kind of circling yeah. back, I, th- I think like uh, a lot of the issues have been we were promised that Lightning would fix so many things, and it it hasn't. And now we're starting to sh- see a shift to people focusing on on other layer two networks, most of which have concessions with the the way that uh, minor incentives work, or they have concessions with custody, or they have concessions with the other changes we'd have to make to Bitcoin that are also going to be contentious and be problematic. And there's there's a I think a lack of a real vision for how we get to Bitcoin actually being digital cash outside of just using the tools we have today. And like you had Samurai Wallet on your podcast and I am massive, massive fans of theirs. They they are really the only thing that's kept me in Bitcoin for the last few years because it's the only way that I feel I can use Bitcoin in a way that's privacy preserving. And the only way I can use Bitcoin as digital cash is really by using Samurai Wallet. Um, but app layer privacy has has other issues. So that's one of the things where I like one of the things I, I think I mentioned outside of this tornado cash indictment was if we had privacy at the consensus layer, I don't think any government is stopping Bitcoin at this point. If they wanted to, I don't think that they could. And often they wouldn't want to because there's other ulterior motives there. So if the privacy was happening at that base layer, like Monero, it would be something where it would just, who cares if they indict you? Who cares if they if they try to shut down core development or whatever? Miners are going to keep mining. Nodes are going to keep running. Miners could could focus on uh, mining in secret, building their own ASICs. There's lots of different things that could be taken. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I got a little lost there. 
but a long-winded well, answer. <laughs> I mean, no, you raised some great points. And, and when I say you, you, you talked a little bit about what it means for Bitcoin to be captured, right? Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge that in a sense, every open source project is captured in a way by the consensus, right? By the, by the decisions made by the community about its development. Um, there's only one Bitcoin and mm -hmm. that one Bitcoin has to be one set of rules, one piece of code, right? So um, when I say it's been captured, I guess what I mean is there is that, that overarching mentality um, in the community that has led to an abandonment of privacy. Um, the, I guess the key issue there, though, is I think it's driven by, by money. I think it's driven by who has the most money, who can make the most money, who's investing the most money, who's paying the most money to developers, um, you know, stuff like that. Exchanges like the Coinbases and the, the you know, the big companies of the world that, that are involved in on this level. Um, I, I think, I think I, they're influencing it. I think I'd push back a little bit on that, though, because I, I think that while they do seem to wield a lot of power, I think like we saw in the block size wars, the, they, they don't necessarily control what happens within Bitcoin. We can through social consensus. And the way that Bitcoin changes is social consensus. I think a lot of people assume that like Bitcoin consensus is a technical thing that's been implemented in code. But the only reason why those choices were made was because there was social consensus behind what was wanted out of Bitcoin. And I mean, even now we could, if we could shift social consensus somehow to focus on privacy by default at layer one, it, those things could be implemented. We have the the cryptographic tools. We have the we have the code. We have all these ways that we could change Bitcoin to make it a a more private tool, a more digital cash like tool. Um, but the problem is shifting social consensus, and a lot of social consensus is formed through honestly influencers and talking heads, the people who are garnering the most uh, listeners who are kind of controlling the majority of what people view Bitcoin as. And I think there was a there was a large shift towards this digital gold hodl only mentality, which says Bitcoin is perfect. Bitcoin is this immaculate conception. All you have to do is buy it, hold it, and we're all going to win. And obviously, that's a little bit of a uh, overstatement on the, the view, but that that is a, a broad view that was pushed by many people who had very large audiences. And that well, is how social was, consensus is formed. That was the clearest path to $50,000 Bitcoin. Like that was, yeah. it's all about greed. It's all driven by greed. Uh, yeah. no, all no, of this is true. greed. Yeah. Okay. So it's like if Monero could be, you know, if privacy could be taken away from Monero, there'd be a group pushing for that right now um, because of greed. Because, you know, it's just like where things can be changed to make people more money, they will be changed to make people more money. You know, and that's a big risk of any of these projects. But I think personally, the best case scenario may be actually forming before our eyes where we do have a transparent Bitcoin that's accepted, that's that governments aren't trying to chase down, um, that is... Um, as decentralized as, as you can imagine in 2023, I guess, you know, and then you have other chains um, that we have the technology to 
trustlessly and permissionlessly move back and forth to, like Monero, um, atomic swaps aren't quite real yet. They're not quite. I mean, they are, but they're they're not too. Um, very close. I want to talk. But they've more. been very close talk. for a while. So <laughs> yeah, like I mean, it, it just feels like it needs to get over that last hump. Um, but if we have that, okay, you can Bitcoin is the big one, and then if you want privacy, you can flip over here real fast and get it and run those risks if you want, if it's worth it for you. Or you want this other feature, you can bounce down here. You want programmability, you can bounce to Ethereum if you really want to. Um, you know, so it's like it might be the best case scenario where Bitcoin is like they always used to say the internet of money, and then you have these sort of branches off that do other things. Do you think Monero is is relegated to kind of that secondary role forever because most people just don't care about privacy? Like, do you think that it's, and do you think that's okay? Like, do you think that's a good place for Monero to sit? Yeah. I mean, I think in an ideal world, Bitcoin would have the features of Monero and would still have the the market capture and, and all of the things that Bitcoin has going for it. I think the best case scenario is that the money that's the most popular is also privacy preserving by default. So like, no, I don't think it's best that Monero is relegated to this kind of, uh, I mean, you can really view it as like a, a layer two or some way to scale Bitcoin in a privacy preserving way. Cause I think it really can be viewed as that. Um, but I think that that's probably the, the most realistic scenario. And like you, that's one of the main reasons why I'm still in Bitcoin and why I still think Bitcoin is powerful is because we can have a multi-chain future. And I know that's kind of anathema to a lot of kind of Bitcoin maximalists and the maybe Bitcoin Puritans, which is a, a word Screw that em. Jameson Lopp used. But yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, I think a, a multi-chain They're, multi they're not realistic future, either. So, no, yeah. no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I think this is this is much more realistic. And, and the ability for me to store value in Bitcoin or Monero. Again, it, it's always up to user choice, but I think kind of my my overall thesis for Bitcoin and Monero is that most people who see the need for privacy will store value in Bitcoin and use Monero for spending. And the way that that'll look like is they'll have a stash of Monero that's obviously not their life savings because maybe they don't maybe they don't trust the auditability or they have other concerns with Monero, but they keep enough to to pay for a month's goods and services or six months or whatever they want to store that store in that. And then they just spend from that as they need. I think that's kind of the best of both worlds. And it's one where we, we don't have to have this winner takes all mentality when it comes to these things. And one of the, the beautiful things about digital cash and digital cryptocurrencies is that the, the ability to move between them can be made to be far easier than like moving between us dollars and British pounds. Like you, you mentioned atomic swaps that that even is the most hardcore way to swap between them. There are other ways to do it right now that do have some trust, but when you're doing small amounts, it doesn't really matter. You can do it without giving over KYC. Um, you can do it peer to peer, but atomic swaps are beautiful because you can do them in a fully programmatic way. Another person can just have a listing up. You can take it. You can swap. The other person never even needs to know that it's happening. They don't have to do anything. They just have their, their swap daemon online. And you're able to get the Monero you need for the month. They're able to get the Bitcoin that they want to go ahead and put into savings or whatever. Um, and everyone wins. And that the ability to seamlessly move between cryptocurrencies in kind of a multi-chain future is 
I, I think is what will really enable freedom through these tools. It's not that everyone will use Bitcoin and everyone will be happy, but that Bitcoin will be the the hub as it has been for cryptocurrencies and will be kind of the starting place of most people. But then once they realize the need for privacy and they realize that privacy on Bitcoin is is harder, it's doable, but it's harder. They'll realize that, oh, I can just seamlessly jump into Monero, swap for some of that, and then I can I can spin from that. Um, and that really benefits everyone because mm. that benefits Bitcoin because maybe there's less less pressure or less need to build out things that are are able to be captured. There are custodial privacy services or ones that are centralized, those kinds of things. Uh, and it obviously helps Monero because it means there's a lot more liquidity and a lot more ability to get in and out of Monero, which makes it better for merchants, which comes full circle and you build this circular economy that includes Bitcoin and Monero uh, and probably something like Ethereum because I do think that programmability is valuable. I think the lack of privacy in Ethereum is problematic even for that, but um, they have a lot of layer two approaches that they're they're trying to tackle that. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's kind of my ideal realistic future is Bitcoin, it's it's not going to become privacy preserving by default. I just don't think there's a realistic path to that. I'm not sure if any of the layer two approaches are going to actually work in reality, whether we're going to get something powerful like zero knowledge rollups or something on Bitcoin. And Monero works amazingly well right now. It's easy to use. There's good wallets for it. It's easy to swap between the two in decentralized ways. With atomic swaps, it be <clears throat> even easier. Even though liquidity may be a concern with atomic swaps, that's kind of yet to be seen. Um, but you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. Story value in Bitcoin, spend in Monero, gain privacy that way, gain the the ease of auditing that comes with Bitcoin, and enjoy. Yeah, I, I do, however, see a future where there's more experiments with with forking Bitcoin and with um, implementing different kinds of privacy potentially on a fork, you know, and, and I mean, Zcash was, was one thing. Um, but I think there's still more to try. I would love to see more to, more of that kind of stuff being done. You know, it's- the problem with forks though, is just, you come back to network effect. I mean, it's, it's been hard enough for the lightning network to gain network effect. Cause even though it's denominated in Bitcoin, it requires different payment methods and different handling than on chain right. Bitcoin. And there's been a great struggle there. I mean, even when you look at like, uh, one of my favorite kind of proxy merchants, coin cards, they publish the percentage of uh, gift cards that they sell for each cryptocurrency each month. Lightning is terrible. It's like I've never seen it above two and a half or three percent of their usage, whereas Monero is basically equal with Bitcoin in usage now. Um, and the I think the problem for Lightning is not only that it's incredibly difficult to use in a non-custodial way without lots of concessions, but you still have the whole separate network effect. Because if mm-hmm. I get you to accept Bitcoin on chain, I still can't pay you with Lightning. Or if I get you to accept Lightning, but I happen to want to pay on chain, maybe for something larger that you're selling or whatever, it, it's still, it's essentially two different currencies, even though it's denominated in Bitcoin. And if you do other forks, like you do a Zcash ultra private or whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't change that. It's going to have the same problem. I, I think that once Monero implements global membership proofs, the kind of war for privacy coin dominance is it's over. There's there's nothing else that will beat out Monero because there's nothing substantial enough that you can change at that point to overcome the network effect advantage that Monero has when it comes to privacy preserving cryptocurrencies. Um, and I, I think probably that's even true with layer twos in Bitcoin. Like I, I think I- if there's a privacy preserving <laughs> layer two, it's going to be hard to get that network effect because you still need to get merchants into that layer two 
or you need some way to be able to pay them. Maybe you can pay out a layer two through lightning or other things, which is possible, but it, it gets tricky because you need something else. And Monero is already gaining good market share there. Probably not as much as lightning at this point, um, but we'll, we'll see how the future holds. Mm. It's interesting to hear you become such a maximalist. It's over. <laughs> Monero's it. Once it does this, it's done. There's no further innovation necessary. Not, I know that's not, not no further I innovation. Know <laughs> <laughs> I just had to pick on you because it sounded like like a Bitcoiner for half a second. My, there. my Monero maximalist coming out. So <laughs> I, I keep him hidden inside most of the time, but sometimes he breaks free. What kind of impact do you think the tornado cash? Um, well, the indictments for one, but then if it goes to trial, it could not, and maybe they'll plea or whatever, but like, what kind of impact do you think this could have on Monero development, if any, depending on the different kinds of outcomes we might see? I think Monero is well positioned for it to be the least impactful possible. I mean, it, the problem with a a situation like the tornado cash indictment is the government knows what they're doing. They know that through the sanctions and the indictment, they can create a chilling effect around creating and using privacy tools. And that is one of the things that they want out of it. And possibly the main thing or the only thing that they want out of the indictment. I think there are a lot of reasons that if the indictment actually goes to trial, which it, I, I think you hit on it, it probably won't. Most of these things, they just plea out and you never get to see anything else out of it. Um, but if it does go to trial, there's a lot of stuff that's just so far off base and false in the indictment that I don't understand how a, a judge who actually understands how Tornado Cash works could convict on these counts. Obviously, that's not to say that it's not rigged and they're convicted anyways, even though it's it's ludicrous claims being made. But even if that doesn't happen, what just the indictment does, which they can indict pretty freely and say pretty much whatever they want in the indictment is it, it does have a chilling effect on developers. I think when you look at Monero specifically, there's always been a culture of pseudonymous or even anonymous contributions to the Monero code base. Um, and there's always been a, a recommendation to developers to do it pseudonymously. Um, and the, the main developers, the main uh, core members of Monero throughout the years have been pseudonymous. And that is very much by design, because we understand that building a privacy-preserving tool that takes back power from the government and gives it to the individual is something you're going to have to have to fight for in the future. And there's no reason to reveal more information about yourself than you need to to contribute. Um, but I, there, there certainly could be a chilling effect out of this. I think, thankfully, since Monero's privacy is done at the consensus layer, it's even harder to make any sort of legal or regulatory argument that Monero itself or using Monero itself is any form of money laundering or money transmission or anything like that. It would, if Tornado Cash's indictment is ludicrous and absurd, in, indicting like Monero core developers or something would be a whole nother like quantum leap in imagination that the government would have to make to to actually take any steps there. Um, but I, I am worried that it will have a chilling effect broadly on people who wanted to build privacy tools or wanted to build on Monero, but now are worried that at some point in the future, the government will just change its mind on how these things work, which is basically what the Tornado Cash indictment looks like. It doesn't follow FinCEN's guidance. It doesn't seem to match anything that we've seen from the government before in the way that they prosecuted privacy tools and in Bitcoin and others. So it's, it's that, that doubt that they're sowing 
that is so dangerous. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why like, I want to continue to push people like keep contributing, keep using these tools, but protect yourself along the way, like use other privacy tools, use pseudonyms online, use privacy preserving chats, if you're going to chat about stuff that that doesn't need to be public for accountability or for community involvement, do things in a way that that limits your exposure so that when a tyrannical or totalitarian government goes after Monero or some other privacy tool, you've protected yourself as best you can. Um, and I think that's that's vital to do and start from the basis of I'm going to reveal as little about myself as possible and just contribute, build my reputation up, not rely on maybe some alternate personality that people know me about on Twitter and just build and build in, in private as much as possible in the sense of preserving your identity and preserving your kind of uh, activity. Why didn't fluffy pony do that? What's wrong with that guy? He's out there, face <laughs> everywhere, name everywhere, getting brought in by the feds or whatever that was all about. By the Such way, that's number situation. three on my on my list of 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 concerns about Monero. And it, people think I'm joking about this, and this is not meant to impugn his integrity in any way. It's just a very black and white, just totally factual thing. He was was it the feds? He was brought in by the, was it the FBI? Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it, was, it was the FBI. I, I, I might be wrong about that. Extra data from South Africa, essentially. Right. To South mm-hmm. Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, on, it, was a, it was different. It was not related to Monero, as no, far as no, I know. No. It was, that's what they say, my friend. That's what they say. Okay, that's so. That's another weird I, look, and, and ludicrous seeming case. If it looks like, you know, if it looks like it and smells like it, then you got to wonder what's going on. Why this guy? Why is he being brought into a dark room? You don't hear from him for, for days or a week. And all of a sudden he's out and everything's fine. So, look, if he's listening, I'm sure he'll catch wind of this, whatever. I'm not trying to bash you as a person. I'm just, if, if it wasn't you, it could be anybody. Um, that's a, a lead, um, not a lead dev, but a founder, a co-founder, whatever, knows Monero inside. Now, you get brought into a dark room for days with feds, I get a little nervous about what happened in there, okay? But, so, but that's where it comes back to open source and separation of duties. When he was arrested, he had no power to push builds. He had no power to do anything like that. He had been a core maintainer for a while, which essentially meant that he he managed pull requests. He helped to publish new releases alongside other people. Um, so he did have some kind of power in the project as far as that went. But when he was arrested, he had nothing like that. And there, there's, I mean, there's been this kind of conspiracy of like, what it, did he tell them about a backdoor? But the code is open source. He is not even a developer, really. He's done some in the past, but the majority of his role has been as a, a, as a maintainer and kind of community steward of the project. So he certainly has not introduced some sort of backdoor five years ago or 10 years ago or whatever to, to leverage now. And there's no way that he could be shipping anything in the code that wouldn't be seen by other developers. It's all open mm-hmm. source. Monero builds are reproducible. So there's really, there's no, there's nothing reasonable that the government could have done. The only thing that I could think is if the case was actually bogus, which it, it seems to be in hindsight and from talking to some other people behind the scenes, it seems like it was just the South African government being idiots. But if it was bogus and it was like an FBI conspiracy to bring in the the ex-core maintainer of Monero and, and grill him for backdoors, 
there's nothing else he could give them. Everything is open source. If there was a backdoor, they could find it and they could have used it without him. Um, but if there was a backdoor, everyone else who worked on the code or who reviewed it, every auditor, et cetera, would all have to be either complicit or blind. So it's like, there's, there was nothing really to worry about about that case. I mean, there was obviously like, as soon as he was arrested, there was a double check within the community where we made sure that there was no additional access he had to like the website or to file hosting, because obviously Monero wallet downloads are served from a file host, things like that. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's really no. I don't think any rational concern for what happened as, as it pertains to the Monero community. I mean, it seemed like a really just crappy situation for fluffy pony himself to have to go through. Um, but yeah, it wasn't concerning at all sure from the Monero project perspective. Um, once you understand kind of like how things are separated and how little could be done in a, a truly open source project. And that is one of the huge benefits of open source. And one of the huge dangers of closed source is if the project is not open source, those kinds of things can easily happen. A, a, a dev could easily be compromised, change something, and no one would ever know except for maybe the other developers on his team or something who get access to the code. Yeah. I mean, uh, personally, even if there's not some exploit he could have revealed or some, um, you know, some way, some backdoor he somehow revealed that doesn't seem likely at all, like you said, but he might know where the soft spots are. He might know where you could poke with a stick and and start to to see some of the the weak spots, or he might know where some bodies are buried. Um, In those cases, it just narrows the the scope of where they would need to to look. So it's look, this is total speculation again. If like he was conspiracy like theory. if he was like the lead dev for Monero, yeah. if he was one of yeah. the people who had contributed the majority of the code, that would mm-hmm. be much more of a cause for concern in my opinion. Yeah, I totally. Um, I agree. But as a as a maintainer and kind of a community steward rather than a developer at his core, I think it's a lot less worrying because there was much less under his purview and there's much less chance that he would know about something that for some reason another more developer-focused person in the community wouldn't have caught. Obviously, it's certainly possible. It's yeah. all speculation. But would love to know. I, one I think way or there's another, not but... there's not much cause for concern there outside of like was it something to try to create a chilling effect in the Monero Dev community or something like that could be maybe a valid reason for it. But it also might have just been the South African government being crap. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I hear you. It still sticks in my mind, though. I didn't have Even that on my list that... of uh, things we were going to cover today. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a long time. <laughs> Those are like my top three Monero uh, concerns. Now, the the benefits of it outweigh those for me as far as using it as a tool, um, as far as, as um, trusting in the cryptography and, and the privacy. Um, but... You know, it's good to put them out on the table and discuss issues like that because all you get on Twitter is maximalism. It's so it's so hard to get into these even, conversations. Even from the Monero side, unfortunately, it, that's who it, I'm talking. There, about. there are yeah, there there are Monero <laughs> reply guys, and there's there's people within the Monero community who don't understand the trade offs that are inherent to the things that Monero has done, and and nothing you do in building these protocols is without trade offs. Everything right. has benefits and drawbacks and i I think that the trade-offs on the benefit side drastically outweigh the the negatives that come with the choices that have been made in monero but yeah yeah, these these longer form not 240 character conversations are 
the ideal way to hash these things out and get to a better understanding of them. And I think that's that's one of the things I've loved in the Monero community. And really one of the things that endeared me to them initially was that every Sunday they had a, a, Monero, uh, a Monero skepticism post on Reddit. And the whole goal was that you shared the issues you had with Monero and the Monero community came together to discuss them in the open. And I think that's something that we could really benefit from in in other communities like the Bitcoin community is a lot more long form, calm, <laughs> rational discussion that's not on Twitter. Because Twitter is probably the worst possible medium for technical discussions around protocols. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's sad that it's the core of where Bitcoin discussion happens. And there's other good efforts to try to get that back to kind of a Bitcoin talk style uh, discussion. And obviously, the mailing list that, that a lot of the, the dev and cryptography work happens on is, is very different. But Twitter is just a, is an absolutely awful medium for any of these kinds of discussions. So long form kind of getting things out there being open and honest about benefits and drawbacks is is so important for this so important for Bitcoin, so important for any freedom tool. I mean, if you're talking about freedom tech, generally, we have to have these discussions to properly understand how these things work, what they're good at, what they're not good at, so that people can come and make informed decisions on what tools they want to put in their toolkit. Because ultimately, that kind of freedom or self-sovereignty comes down to how are you choosing to approach things? And you need to understand these things to be able to approach them. So I love these kind of open, open and honest conversations. Before I let you go, before we wrap up, um, where are you at with mobile these days? Last I talked to you, it was Calyx OS. Um, are you still there with the, with a pixel? Is that what you're doing? Ooh, um, or do so, you not discuss? No, I do. So I was on Calyx for a long time. Um, I switched to Graphene OS about a year and a half ago um, and had been running that exclusively. Um, I think both are excellent options. I think my slight recommendation would be Graphene OS, but... There's some weird stuff behind the scenes that um, makes me hesitant to discuss it more. Um, oh, but I know. In in actuality, I've actually been testing out using an iPhone recently. Ooh, both baby. to see if it's Scandalous. beneficial for me. I, I know, I know. It's not something I've talked about publicly <laughs> at all, so okay. you're the first to know. Um, but part of that is some some other issues behind the scenes that we won't get into. But I I was very curious how using an iPhone with all of the added steps that Apple had put in place to preserve your privacy from Apple and to preserve your security from attackers like lockdown mode uh, have actually gone and how, how usable they are, how useful they are both from the perspective of seeing how they work for me, but also just so that I can, I can comment with an educated background on how those things work and what they're like to use in practice. Cause mm-hmm. I, I talked a little bit previously about like, I, I really like, some of the approaches that Apple is taking. The only real issue for me now is that it's closed source. It's not, it's not an open source platform uh, and it is a pretty restricted platform, which is 100% problematic. And my broad recommendation would not be iOS yet. Um, but I love the, the approach they've taken with advanced data protection. I think it's a, a massive win for the kind of average Joe being able to gain privacy from Apple and from people who would attack Apple and try to steal data, because essentially you can go through a kind of a similar process that you would do with securing your Bitcoin. You get a recovery key, and the only person who has access to that data is you and anyone who has that recovery key at that point, which is a, a far cry from what used to be where Apple had just complete access to everything you did, all your photos, all of that. 
Whereas now all of that is end-to-end encrypted between your devices uh, and is not visible to Apple, even with a, even with a warrant, even if someone hacks Apple, et cetera. Um, and then lockdown mode is a, a really helpful security inclusion that they have now that if you're a little bit more high profile or you're a, a journalist or activist who could be targeted with like a Pegasus malware or something that's on kind of the cutting edge of, of malware out there, it can provide a lot of protection as well. Um, so that's where I'm at. I'm not recommending Apple or iOS at this point, but I, I have been very pleasantly surprised by the choices that they've made. They've, they've put a lot of legitimately useful privacy tools at the fingertips of people who otherwise would have no access to those tools. Uh, and so I wanted to have a better understanding for how they actually work in practice, what they're like, what the drawbacks are. Um, and I think m- a lot of people would benefit from just turning on advanced data protection, continuing to use an iPhone, and then they'd be in a much better situation than they even would be on a stock Android phone or something. But I do think right. that the, the ultimate best place for the majority of people who can is to switch to something like Calyx OS or Graphene OS for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that I, I did that a couple of years ago, I guess, switched to Calyx OS, which is, you know, Graphene OS is like the, the you're not going to have any fun with your phone. It's going to block everything fun. And it's not true anymore. It, it's actually things. not true anymore. So that okay. that was that was true back in the day, uh, especially mm-hmm. when like we were first talking about it and going through Calyx OS versus Graphene OS. But they have done a lot of things to make it much, much more user-friendly. Uh, and they have a, I think it's called the Google Play compatibility layer, where you can still install the Google Play services, use the Google Play store, all of that. It's in a, a hardened manner, so it's good for security, but not necessarily for privacy. Um, and you can do that, you can drastically restrict what Google is able to access, but still have functionality like notifications, like banking apps working like installing things from the Play Store. Um, so they, they have come a long way in, and I think Calyx OS was good pressure for them to realize mm. that not everyone wants the hyper hardcore, I can barely use my phone approach, which is valid for specific people. But for the majority of people, I'm not, I'm not going to get my mom or my wife to use like Graphene OS without Google Play services or Calyx right. OS without Micro G. Like it's, it's just not going right. to happen at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that they've they've done a lot of work there, and I actually really do appreciate the the approach that they've taken to that. It's I'd say it's probably on par in usability with Calyx OS at this point, um, but with a different approach with different advantages and disadvantages. Interesting. Oh, that's good to know. Maybe we'll give it another try. I will say, trying it for um, I probably was using it for close to a year um, exclusively, and switched to Linux for a while, and really tried to harden everything. You know. I switched back to Mac and iPhone eventually, but I switched back with a greater appreciation for for what I needed to do to stay private with the iPhone, with the Mac, and with you know mm-hmm. these types of of tools. Even if you don't plan on staying forever with these hardened privacy, you know, things that you think only like Edward Snowden would need, <laughs> it's still useful to live your life that way for a while mm-hmm. and to realize how much you're giving up by by using these closed source apps and how much you're giving up by, by using these, these walled gardens and, um, and how much you can live without. I think like one of the most advantageous things that came with switching to, I switched to Calyx OS originally from using just regular Android was just the understanding that like a lot of the apps and services I thought I needed, I don't like, I don't need it all. I don't miss. That's one of the, like the, the main recommendations I make is like delete all your social media, 
apps, like delete the vast majority of what you use and then only add things back as you feel like, okay, I, I am really missing that. Because a lot mm-hmm. of it, we just have a, a, a an addiction to a lot of the things that are not actually beneficial and not actually helpful. So that is one of the benefits is when you kind of get that chance to start with a clean slate that I feel like we don't usually get. Usually like in the digital world, we started with a clean slate before we understood anything. And then we just have been building on it for a decade or however long. And then we just keep inheriting those things with the next phone we get or the next operating system we run. So that chance to to start with a clean slate and kind of practice digital minimalism intentionally is so, so useful. And it has helped me to realize that I need drastically less out of my phone than I thought I did. And I can do the majority of what I need on my computer, uh, on my laptop, but whatever, rather than relying on my phone to do everything for me um, for a lot of different reasons. Or even in your phone browser, you know, just like moving from the app to a browser and using the the browser website, the mobile website, like people don't understand the differences and they don't understand the importance of doing something like that until you go through that kind of exercise and you really sit down and you watch every Seth video and every technical video <laughs> on these topics and you start to realize, dang, okay. So I would say to people, I tell people now, you don't have to plan to stay in that world forever, but if mm-hmm. you stay there for a while and then eventually switch back, you're going to come back with a greater sense of what what is important and what you need to do to protect yourself. Now I'm using an iPhone, um, mostly switched back for productivity purposes and, you know, because there's so much you can't do on Linux and on Graphene and Calyx. Um, the trade-offs are huge to, to move over. I mean, no matter what they say, they're, they're pretty big, mm-hmm. especially if you're coming yep. from iOS. So it's like, you know, I switched back so I could do stuff like this, like record this conversation just as hard on, on Linux sometimes. <laughs> so um, I am on Linux now just for what it's worth. Ah, uh, fine. Whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. I should switch again. Uh, actually, but, but, you know, I, I think that it's, it's good for education as is everything, you know, if you think you can't stick with it, it's not a good reason to not try it. You know, so that goes for crypto. It goes for everything, I think. You know mm-hmm. what we didn't talk about that I wanted to talk about? Maybe we'll do this again uh, some other time. Is the, um, the the article you wrote about 12 words versus 24 words, oh, seed yeah. phrase. Um, it's too much of a topic to get into right now, but <laughs> that's another thing. Um, um, I'll actually, I'll share that in the show notes because anybody listening yeah. this far into the podcast should read that post because it's really interesting. It talks about, it's sort of like a, a, a philosophical proof for why, um, 12 words is enough on mm-hmm. your seed phrase, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it's that was, interesting. That was a fun one to write. It was not, yeah. the conclusion is something I've been thinking about for a long time, but never kind of put put pen to paper or done the the deep research and it was fascinating to do i think uh, yeah I'd, I'd love it if you share it and I'd, I'd be happy to come on and chat maybe we just do kind of like a rapid fire episode around it and, and dig into yeah, it yeah yeah i think it's one that's really helpful for people when especially when they're first getting started with cryptocurrency we can we can simplify a bit of that journey and not actually lose anything yeah those are such that's important conversation that, that we don't have enough in general is that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, a world where everybody's doing 12 words with diceware and, and like, you know, just like (laughs) (laughs) skipping the hardware wallet entirely. Like this is, that's a great future, you know? So it's like, um, another time, but for Mm -hmm. now, this has been great. It answered a lot of my questions about Monero. Um, I love to talk about this stuff. So thanks for coming on. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. It's always a blast to get to get to chat with you, and I, I just love your your honesty and and the kind of laid back approach with with this pod that you've taken. So thank you for having me. Glad we got to chat, Monero. Always happy to chat about that, and it's not not too frequent I get to. So good thing to cover, and uh, definitely look forward to chatting again soon. Right on. 